I would like to begin this morning with, with a question. And that question would be this. It's to each one of us. Do you and I view money as an effective barometer of our spiritual life? I'll say that again. Do you and I view money as an effective barometer of our spiritual life? Think about that. Ponder that a while. Money in and of itself, we find, is neither good nor bad. We see that corrupt people can put it to evil uses, and good people can put it to righteous uses. Even though the money in itself is neutral, what we do with it reflects what's in the inside. It reflects our internal morality. Jesus said in Luke chapter 12 and also in Matthew 6, he says that where your treasure is, there will your heart be also. Where your treasure is, there will your heart be also. Now we see in the word of God that the Bible does not forbid the possession of money. In fact, do you know that it teaches that God gives the power to make wealth? We see in Deuteronomy chapter 8, verse 18. And we also see that it richly supplies us with all things to enjoy in 1 Timothy 6, 17. Because of his blessing, we see that many, many godly men were extremely wealthy in the word, extremely such as Job, we see in Job chapter 1, verse uh, 3, 13, I mean, or no, verse 3. Boaz in Ruth chapter 2, verse 1. We look at Abraham in Genesis 13, verse 2. Isaac in Genesis 26, 12, and 13. And Jacob in Genesis 30, 43, and Solomon. In 1 Kings chapter 10, 23, just a few of very, very wealthy men that God promised his people that their obedience to his will and to him would result in material as well as spiritual blessings. We find that in Deuteronomy 15, 4 through 6. While you and I see that the Bible does not forbid us possessing money. It does forbid us loving it. There's much warning in the Word of God about loving money. It says, and it warns us, that the love of money is the root of all evil. All kinds of evil, it says. And some, by longing for it, have wandered away from the faith and pierced themselves with many griefs or sorrows, or pangs. 1 Timothy 6.10. Later on, Paul exhorts Timothy to instruct those who are rich in this present world not to be conceited or proud or to fix their hope on uncertain riches. In verse 17. You see, to love money is to have an unhealthy affection for it and to be driven to pursue it 
or to strive after it. We've all seen those, and, and maybe we ourselves at times have, have pursued money to our detriment. Though Solomon was one of the richest and most wealthy men that ever walked the face of this earth, he says, he who loves money will not be satisfied with money, nor he who loves abundance with its income. He said it was all vanity and vexation of spirit in Ecclesiastes 5.10. The most wealthiest man that ever lived said it was nothing but vanity, and he had a lot. We're going to look at some uh, who did practice the love of money and see what happened. Aiken's love of money brought disaster upon himself, upon his family, and upon his nation. Joshua 7, 1 through 25, read that sometime. Balaam's Balaam's love of money caused him to foolishly attempt to curse God's people, which resulted in his death. Numbers 22, verse 24. Delilah, her love of money led her to betray Samson, which led to the death of thousands and thousands of the Philistines. In Judges 16, 4 through 30. Judas's love of money caused him to betray the Lord Jesus Christ and damn himself to eternal turmoil in hell. Matthew 26, 14 through 24. Ananias and Sapphira, we've heard about them in Acts. Their love of money led them to lie about their giving, resulting in God's execution of them. In Acts 5, 1 through 10. So we see what the love of money can do. You see, loving money makes us forget God in Proverbs 30, verse 9. It makes us trust in our riches rather than in Him. In Psalms, I'm sorry, Psalms 52, verse 7. It causes us to be deceived in Mark 4, 19. It causes us to compromise our convictions and to be proud. Deuteronomy 8.14. It causes us to steal from God. Malachi 3.8. It causes us to ignore the needs of others and helping of the poor. In 1 John 3.17. This is what happens to you and I, to all of us, when we allow money to become our God rather than the Lord Jesus Christ. My good, dear friend, Gordon Rumble, pastor, says, it is not wrong for us to have things. It is wrong for us to have, for us, for things to have us. I'm going to say that again. It is not wrong for us to have things, but it is wrong for things to have us. Think about that. Now let us look at some acceptable ways to acquire money. It might be through gifts, Acts 20, 
verse 35. Investments, Matthew 25. Saving, Proverbs 25, 20. Wise planning, in Proverbs again, 27, 23, and 24. And primarily, just through good old-fashioned hard work. Might say just a little something about that, because work is a blessing. Really, work is how we are able to earn money to take care of our families, and it's how we earn money so we can help others. If we don't work and earn money, we can't really do it. We can't give. <laughs> we don't have anything to give. So it is a blessing to work. And I'm going to give you several verses because it's important. Exodus 20, 29. Proverbs 6, 6 through 8. Proverbs 14, 23. Proverbs 24, 30 through 34. Ephesians 4, 28. 2 Thessalonians 3, verse 10. And there's many more. But work is a blessing. The Bible also gives us guidelines how to spend our money. It is to be used to provide for the needs of our households in 1 Timothy 5.8, to pay, pay debts in Romans 13.8, to save for the future when we can no longer work, like I'm at right now, Proverbs 30.25, and to be ready always, willingly and generously to give money to further God's kingdom. Though many view giving as another obligation, it is in reality a priceless privilege. Quoting MacArthur, a priceless privilege. Jesus promised, what did he say in Luke uh, chapter 6, verse 38? He says, give and it will be given to you. They will pour into your lap a good measure, pressed down, shaken together, and running over. For by your standard of measure, it will be measured to you in return. I think we've all experienced that. When we give beyond, and very generously he does, he pours into our lap, and it's pressed down. It's shaken together, and it runs over. Again, quoting MacArthur, generous giving to God results in greater Giving from God. It is impossible to outgive God. This should stimulate us, he says, to be generous givers. Sadly to say, the powerful lure of the world's advertising, slick appeals from professing Christian ministries, self-indulgence, and lack of faith all hinder you and I as believers from experiencing the full blessings of God, of giving. He's right on, right on cue. You know that the early believers, they didn't experience such hindrances. They freely gave in two general ways, and we would be wise to do the same. First of all, we see that they gave freely to support those who were responsible for shepherding the church, for watching over their souls. To Timothy, Paul wrote, the elders who rule well are to be considered worthy of double honor, especially those who work hard at preaching and teaching the gospel. 
That is why, and I'm so grateful and so thankful that even this small group, we are able, by God's grace, to be able to provide for Pastor Phil and Rachel and his family. Praise God. What a blessing it is to be able to generously give to him for that work. For by, and uh, also, secondly, he says, the early church gave to meet the needs of the poor in 1 Corinthians 1.26. So we are to take care of our pastor, those who preach the word Sunday after Sunday after Sunday, and please don't fail to pray mightily for him. Because I want to tell you something. Just by standing up here and preaching the word of God, Satan, for some reason, throws all kinds of darts at us in the week prior, it seems like. I felt it this week. But I also felt his uh, almighty prayer and his power. So we're thankful for that. The early believers did not... Ex uh, I'm sorry here. <laughs> Missed my next thought. Let us look at what was taking place at this time that caused Paul to address the Corinthian church in 2 Corinthians chapter 8. And we'll look at just a, just a bit of a background first. Paul was concerned here about the poor and the needy saints in the Jerusalem church. Most of, the, most of them were pilgrims. Most of them were first-time converts to the Lord Jesus Christ. And they were visiting Jerusalem to celebrate the day of Pentecost. That meaning it was the Christian church when the Christian church was born, Pentecost. And they were, at that time, mostly Hellenistic Jews who lived in Gentile lands to which the Jewish believers had been scattered and dispersed and driven out. On the day of Pentecost, it says that 3,000 people were added to the church, and we see it in Acts 2.41. Soon afterwards, the number increased to 5,000. It says in Acts 4.4, not counting the women. So the church was getting large at that time. It was the only place. Since there were no more churches or Christians anywhere else, these converted Christians stayed in Jerusalem. That was the only place that they could sit under the apostles' teaching and have fellowship with other believers. That's the only place they had to go. And many of them were alienated from their families and friends after becoming born-again believers. And they had to flee their homes. They had to leave. They had to move in with other Jewish believers who lived in Jerusalem, who were also poor. And because of their poor condition themselves, having to take care of thousands of these new converts became a great hardship for them. Let's, can we visualize that just a little bit, what was going on there? And we see that one great reason for their poverty was that the persecution they were facing. New converts had lost their jobs and they were ostracized, as we said, by their family and their friends because they were Christians now. And also the poor economic climate of that region. And again, the Romans took resources by placing a heavy burden of taxation on them. 
Another problem was worldwide famine was predicted. The result, rampant poverty in Israel. Tremendous poverty. And the Bible records here, it says, they made a noble effort to meet the needs of their poor members. Acts 2.44 and 45 says this. It says that all those who had believed were together and had all things in common. They sold their property and their possessions and sharing with them all as anyone had need. Because of their selfless dedication to meet the needs of one another, in the early days, the church, there was not a needy person among them. That's amazing, isn't it? But later, their needs began to grow as they grew, and persecution grew worse and worse, and the Jerusalem church was overwhelmed with a lack of funds and needed money. And then Paul comes along. We see Paul recognized their needs, and he was determined to take up collection for the Jerusalem church from the churches of Asia Minor and Europe. We see that in Romans 15, 25 through 27. And, and I made just a little note here in my mind that, that it amazed me that Paul, he, it says he recognized their needs, and he was determined to take up a collection. Paul was a tremendous leader, a strong leader. He saw the needs of that little church, and he determined in his heart he was going to give. He was going to take up a collection for them. He wasn't just going to look at it and pass by. But he was going to give, and he did. And Paul also wanted to strengthen the spiritual bond between the Gentile and the Jewish congregations. You know, there was a kind of a, a split there. It would be a way, he thought, to express that through his death, Jesus Christ himself broke down the barrier wall between Jews and Gentiles, making them one in Jesus Christ. Ephesians 2.14. Huh, what a blessing that is. Neither Jew, nor Greek, nor bond, nor free. We're all one in Christ. And now we get to chapter 8 here. And Paul lists several motives for giving. Generous giving is the behavior always of every born-again child of God. Generous giving. He shows us the example of the Macedonian churches, which were, as, Philippi, as Phil said this morning, Philippi, Thessalonica, and Berea. And the Macedonian churches were made up of these three churches. And these are the churches that we're going to see that Paul's talking about here in chapter 8, verses 1 through 5. And uh, we was going to go further, but for the sake of time, this is as far as we can get. First of all, we see that giving is motivated by God's grace. Motivated is given or motivated by God's grace. What's he say in verse 1? He says, we want you to know, brothers, about the grace of God that has been given 
among the churches of Macedonia. Here we see that the Apostle Paul was calling their attention to something new. He changed from chapter 7 to verse to chapter 8. And he's telling them something new here. He says, who is he speaking to? He said, beloved brothers at Corinth. He says, we want you to know brothers. What is he wanting them to know? He tells us about the grace of God that has been given among who? The churches of Macedonia, who he would use as an example of Christian giving. He used this Macedonian churches as an example of Christian giving. What an encouragement this is to us. Their giving was not motivated simply by human kindness, but by the grace of God working in their hearts. As Phil said this morning about the gospel, if we don't have the gospel of the Lord Jesus Christ uh, completely compelling us to give, it, it doesn't matter. Then it's just us. It's no different than anyone else giving. We have to know the Lord Jesus Christ on a personal basis. One of the effects of a saving, transforming, and sanctifying grace is a longing to give generously and selflessly to those in need, especially to the believers, he says, to the household of faith. The Macedonians, they didn't give like worldly rich people do, many times just a mere token. Sometimes they'll stick $100 in the plate to them when they could give thousands. It's just a token. It'd be like us putting a penny in. Now, if that's all we can put in, that's praise God. Nor did they give like selfish Christians whose love for temporal things matches their love for eternal things. How is it with you and I? I had to, I had to really think about this. Do I love just these things around me more than I love the Lord Jesus Christ or the heavenly things? Where is my treasure? It says where your treasure is, Jesus says, there will your heart be also. The Macedonian church, they gave abundantly as Christ commanded, seek first, the kingdom of God and His righteousness, and all these things will be added unto you in Matthew 6, 33. They truly gave by the grace of God. Secondly, giving transcends difficult circumstances. For a severe test of affliction in 2A. <laughs> this is amazing, really, if you think about it. When he says, we want you to know, brothers, about the grace of God that has been given among the churches of Macedonia. For, in a severe test of affliction. 
When we think of a severe test, what do we think about? It's an ordeal, great ordeal. Paul's referring to it as a trial and a testing. Have you ever been tried? Have you ever been tested by God? I'm sure you have. Those who love, live godly in Christ Jesus, it says, will suffer persecution. But um, he's talking those, uh, those who he chastens, he loves. So we are tested. These folks were tested tremendously. A severe, it describes the spiritual pressure of the Macedonians from their poverty and their persecution that they were going through. The Word of God shows us many places, and we're going to read a few of them, about what the suffering the Macedonians endured. And Paul and Silas was preaching the gospel in Thessalonica. And we see in Acts 17, verse 5 through 8. We'll turn there just for a moment and read that. Acts 17, verse 5 through 8. But the Jews were jealous And taking some wicked men of the rabble, they formed a mob, set the city in an uproar, and attacked the house of Jason, seeking to bring them out to the crowd. And when they could not find them, they dragged Jason and some of the brothers before the city authorities, shouting, These men who have turned the world upside down have come here also. And Jason has received them, and they all are acting against the decrees of Caesar, saying that there is another king, Jesus. And the people and the city authorities were disturbed when they heard these things. They were undergoing physical persecution for preaching Jesus. And in 2 Thessalonians, or 1 Thessalonians 2, 14, I'll go there quickly. 1 Thessalonians chapter 2, verse 14 and 15. For you, brothers, became imitators of the churches of God in Christ Jesus that are in Judea. For you suffered the same things from your own countrymen as they did from the Jews, who killed both the Lord Jesus and the prophets, and drove us out and displeased God and opposed all mankind by hindering us from speaking to the Gentiles that they might be saved again. They were being hindered for preaching the gospel of Jesus Christ. And in 2 Thessalonians 1.4, he says, Therefore we ourselves speak proudly of you among the churches of God for your perseverance and faith in the midst of all your persecutions and afflictions which you endure. Again, afflictions and persecutions. Philippians 1.29, For you, for to you it has been granted for Christ's sake or for His glory, not only to believe in Him, but also to suffer for His sake. Yes. We are to suffer for His sake. It's a blessing, a glory to Him. All who live, He didn't say just some who live godly in Christ Jesus will suffer persecution, but He says all who live godly in Christ Jesus will suffer persecution. Here in America, we're not going through physical persecution like they are in Iran right now. But we are suffering persecution, every one of us, some way or another, spiritual or otherwise. The Macedonians rose above their severe and trying circumstances. 
They did not allow their situation to affect their giving. That's amazing, isn't it? They were willing to put the needs of others whom they did not know ahead of their own. Even the worst of circumstances could not hinder their devotion and their joy to the Lord Jesus Christ. How is it with us? How are we doing when we have a test of affliction? And then they say, next, is giving is with joy. We see an 8 to b Their abundance of joy. It's hard for me, you know, I try to put myself in this situation here. But it's really hard to understand what they were really going through because I've never faced this kind of, of, of trials and testing and persecution. We just don't have that here. But here it says, in their abundance of joy. And the Greek word parisia, uh, referring to abundance, means a surplus or an overflow. So here Paul used it to describe God's saving grace that he pours out in all believers through Jesus Christ in Romans 5.17. They did not give out of a sense of duty or duress. They were not motivated by fear or divine, of divine punishment. Or they weren't afraid of Paul's displeasure. They gave freely out of the abundance of surplus with an overflowing joy, knowing that God loves a cheerful giver, as we see in 9.17. He says the point is this, whoever sows sparingly will reap sparingly, who sows bountifully will also reap bountifully. Each one must give as he has decided in his heart, not reluctantly or under compulsion, for God loves a cheerful giver. They gave freely. They realized and rejoiced knowing that they were laying up for themselves treasures in heaven. There it says, not to lay up for ourselves treasures on earth where moth and rust will destroy or thieves will rake through and steal, but lay up for yourselves treasures in heaven where moth and rust will not destroy, and where thieves will not break through and steal. So they gave with an abundance or an overflowing joy. We also see that giving is not hindered by poverty. And their extreme poverty in 2C. This shows us exactly how little the Macedonians actually possessed. Extreme here translates extremely deep. They were in extremely deep poverty. These folks, it describes that they had almost nothing. Many were forced to beg to survive, to even eat. These folks were like those who were described in Luke chapter 14, verse 13 through 21, when he speaks of the blind and the lame. Or in Mark 12, 42, the destitute widow. And Luke 16, 20, Lazarus and the beggar. 
They had to beg. The Macedonians and you and I who are believers today do not wait until we have more money to give, but we should give as the poor widow did. She gave it all, everything she had. Giving is not a matter of how much we have, but it expresses an unselfish and a loving heart. We learn that the Macedonians' refusal to allow the poverty to stifle their generosity made them models for Christian giving. And that is why Paul used the Macedonians. And we see here that giving is with generosity. Giving is generous. They have overflowed in a wealth of generosity. A2D. Overflowed in the Greek translates abundance. Scripture uses it many times to describe an abundance of material possessions we see in Mark 12.44. God's saving grace abounds or is abundant to sinners in Ephesians 1, 7 and 8. The abundant hope of the Holy Spirit in Romans 15.13. And God's abundant grace towards you and I as believers. 2 Corinthians 9, verse 8. Though it may refer to material riches, we find the word wealth is more commonly used in the New Testament as a spiritual riches. Spiritual riches. So even though that the Macedonians themselves were not rich, in material possessions, even though they had little, they possessed a wealth of generosity in abundance. They were super rich in God, in the grace of God. They were just unbelievably rich in spiritual wealth. This Macedonian church or church's selfless generosity was a practical application of Paul's command when he said, Do nothing from selfishness or empty conceit, but with humility of mind regard one another as more important than yourselves. Do not look out for your own personal interest, but also for the interest of others. In Philippians 2, 3, and 4. That's really telling us, here's what he's saying. He's saying, Bruce, don't look out for your needs. Don't look out for the things that's, that, that's going to really enhance you or, or uh, be good for you. But you look out for the needs of others and those around you. That's what I'm telling you, Bruce. That's what he's saying here. I'm not supposed to look just for my own needs or my own wants, but look out for your needs and your wants. Lay down my life for you. That's giving with generosity. Giving is proportionate. For they gave according to their means. 3a. Here Paul is telling them and us 
He says, I can testify, because he was there revealing his firsthand experience of their generosity. He says, they gave according to their means or to their own ability. That's what they did. Here we see that giving is to be according to what? Not what we do not have, but what we do have. In 2 Corinthians 8, verse 12. Or as each person may prosper. 1 Corinthians 16, 2. We are taught to give according to that which God has blessed you and I. You know, God's blessed us all differently. As far as, as, far as uh, money or things or possessions, we're probably all really very wealthy in consideration of the whole world around us. We really are. We've got a lot. Um, but really, here, what he's telling us, we are to give that which God blesses you and I to give, to our ability to give. Some of us are more responsible to give way more than others. Only you can answer that question. And in verse 3b, it says that giving is sacrificial. I really like this because he says, and beyond their means. They didn't just give what, I mean, this is really all that they had to give, but they gave beyond their means. It would be like this morning for me just taking my billfold or my wallet or whatever we want to call it and laying it out here and just emptying it of the cash every Sunday, bring it out here and just throw it in a giving box. <laughs> That's what they did. They gave way beyond their means or their ability. For such a poor congregation, life was really very, very difficult for them, as we've been seeing. They were facing extreme poverty. They undergone severe affliction, yet they gave joyfully without any regards for themselves to help those poor saints in Jerusalem who they had never seen, and who they had never met. That's amazing to me. They truly believed God's promise to supply all their needs according to His riches and glory by Christ Jesus, as we heard this morning in Philippians 4.19. And they refused to worry about it. They didn't become anxious about what they gave when they gave more than they could. They put their dependence completely upon the Lord Jesus Christ because they knew that he gave his all on the cross of Christ. He gave his life and he shed his blood for you and for me. That is why that we can give it all to him. In Matthew 6, 25 and 34, I'm going to go there and just read that just because I want us to, 
to get the picture. If, if, if you have a tendency to worry, or if you have a tendency to, uh, you think, well, I'm, I'm just afraid. I'd give more uh, to the church, or I'd give more uh, to help the poor, but you know, I, I just, I'm afraid to because I'm just afraid that I won't have enough to take care of myself. And they begin to worry about that. And what, is, what does Jesus tell us here in uh, Matthew 6, uh, beginning at verse 25? He says, therefore I tell you, do not be anxious about your life, what you'll eat or drink, or what your uh, body about what you'll put on. Is not life more than food and the body more than clothing? Look at the birds of the field, or the air. <laughs> That's lilies. <laughs> Sorry, lily. But the, the air. They neither sow nor reap nor gather into barns, and yet your heavenly Father feeds them. Are you not even more valued than they? And which of you, by being anxious can add a single hour to your life. Can't do it. And why are you anxious about clothing? Consider the lilies of the field. How they grow, they don't spin or toil. And yet I tell you, even Solomon, all his glory, and he had a lot of it, was not arrayed or dressed like one of these. But if God so clothes the grass of the field, which today is alive, and tomorrow is thrown into the oven, will he not much more clothe you? Oh, you of little faith. Therefore, do not be anxious what you'll, you will uh, eat or what you'll drink or what you will wear. For the Gentiles seek after those things. And your heavenly Father knows that you need them all. But seek first the kingdom of God and his righteousness, and all these things will be added to you. They completely trusted in the living Christ. Do you and I? Do I really trust in Jesus Christ to the point that I'm willing to give beyond my needs? sacrificially. They did. They completely gave themselves with a selfless abandon. Giving is voluntary. Of their own accord. You see an 8, or 3C. The Macedonians giving was on their own initiative. It was self-motivated. They were not uh, manipulated or intimidated. Uh, no one twisted their arms. Uh, there was no uh, smoke and mirrors or fog or like we see in some churches today. But they gave freely of their own accord. Here Paul was using the Macedonians as an example of their true sacrificial giving to the lagging Corinthian church to imitate. He was showing what the Macedonians did. Remember, he was talking to the Corinthian brothers in Christ and sisters. And he was telling them to imitate this Macedonian churches. You say uh, the, the Corinthian church had become complacent. They were filled with apathy. And you know, that can happen to all of us. It can happen to any church. It can happen to you and I here today at RHC. We can just, uh, we can just go along and, and just give our normal amount each Sunday and, and uh, we think we're just doing really good. And we just get filled with, uh, we're just filled with apathy and uh, we just totally <laughs> are complacent. And that can happen. I've seen it happen in my own life before. 
You know, the New Testament does speak here of free will giving, voluntary giving, but the Macedonians and the Corinthians were not compelled to give, but the amount each believer gives is personally determined. We see in 2 Corinthians 9 how we know that God loves a cheerful giver, but let us never forget, let's always remember, they gave joyfully and beyond their means. What a blessing it is and what a joy it is when we give beyond our means. I, I can't tell you what a joy it is when I really let loose of my possessions, uh, my money. You know, I heard, there, was a, there was a person back in Ohio that we know quite well. He was back there one time and you know, we let them use our car. And they just couldn't believe it, how we just turn our car. It was a pretty new car, and just let them drive it. And uh, they, it seems like they, they wouldn't. He said, we'd never do that. <laughs> Ann said, to us, it's just a car. It's not ours. It's God's. God just gives us our car to use, our house. If you need a place to stay, come over. we got an upstairs. Is that all right, honey? <laughs> I, yeah, call first. There you go. We'll even feed you. But you know what? <laughs> Maybe. Oh, my. <laughs> but they gave joyfully. And you know what else? Giving is a privilege. The next thing. 8-4. I'll tell you, when I read this verse, we're going to maybe read it twice. Being, begging us earnestly. For the favor in taking part in the relief of the saints. Begging us earnestly for the favor in taking part in the relief of the saints. I, I, can't, even, I can't even believe that. I can't go there hardly. My mind it just blows my mind. <laughs> Paul again stresses, he didn't pressure these Macedonians to give. These folks were poor as Job's turkeys. And instead... They asked, and they even begged earnestly with much urging, it says. Yeah. For, the, for what? Just the favor of taking part in the relief of the saints. They were just pleading, urging Paul, begging Paul to let them participate. How amazing. You know what this would be like? I, I just thought of a, just a little example. This would be like, you know, one of our elders, uh, Mike, poor brother, he's he tore the back of his calf and he can't be here this morning. But it'd be like him, okay, he's working, he works in glass, puts in windows and so on, and he's down in Fresno, let's say. So he's down there working and he runs into uh, one of these brothers down there in, in, uh, in Christ and he finds out that these folks don't have hardly anything. I mean, they're struggling just to make ends meet. And, and they, they don't even hardly have enough to pay their pastor. And they're just, they're just hanging on. And, uh, and Mike sees their needs. And just like Paul did, he, he was determined to come back here and tell us, uh, brothers here, us elders and, and Phil, and, and told them that, you know, man, I've determined I'm going to take a collection for these people down here in Fresno. And... So here's what we did. We take it before you, for the church here, 
We'll tell you, you know, there's a church down here really needs our help. They're poor, and uh, they could use some help. And it would be like us coming to you there, and all of a sudden, all of you started coming up and, and begging us. You, you'd get down before us, and you was pleading with us to be able to give and to help for that church down there. Can, can, you even, can we even imagine that, really? Yeah, you would all, every one of you, would just come forth and say, oh, brother, I, I'm just going to empty it out. Just take it. Everything that's in here, it's yours. Give to those folks. And, you know, that's what was going on there. Only the thing different about that was they were very, very poor, and they were suffering persecution and poverty. I don't suppose many of us here are like that. We could really unload and give. But it really, it really hit me. I just, it just, that, that verse just jumped right out of the page when I was reading it. And I thought, boy, boy, wouldn't that be amazing? They were literally begging Paul for the blessing of helping meet the needs of those poor saints in Jerusalem. Whew. They gave seeing it as a great privilege and out of the generosity of what? Their transformed hearts in Jesus Christ. That's what it was. Their hearts were transformed. Now lastly, we're going to see in verse 5a that giving is an act of worship. It's an act of worship and a first priority. And this... Not as we expected, but they gave themselves, what? First, to who? The Lord. And this introduces the next feature of the Macedonians' giving. Not only is it the next feature, it's really the greatest feature. How they responded was much more than what Paul even expected. He was hoping for an offering in which they totally gave freely and generously. We see they gave of themselves first to the Lord. First carries the meaning of a first priority. It was their first priority to give of themselves to the Lord. Not the first time. The Macedonians' first priority was to give themselves wholeheartedly to the Lord and their giving to the church followed. Just like it does with us. You know, the perfect act of worship, it's not attending church, that's good. It's not the singing of the hymns, that's good. Or it's not even the giving of the money, that's great. But it is the giving of ourselves first, totally, to the Lord Jesus Christ. That is what He wants. He wants you and I 
He says in Romans chapter 12, 1, I appeal or I beseech you therefore, brothers, by the mercies of God, to present your bodies a living sacrifice, holy and acceptable to God, which is what your spiritual worship. Do not be conformed to the world, but be transformed to the, uh, by the renewing of your mind, that by testing you may discern what is the will of God and that which is good and acceptable and perfect. Dear ones, this morning, God does not just want our giving. He wants us. He wants our bodies as a living sacrifice, totally given over to Him. Because if He's got us, He's got all of us. He's got our homes. He's got our money. He's got our cars. He's got every possession that we own. It's all His. How come we hang on to it? Why don't we turn loose and give generously? That's what He wants. That's what He desires. I think sometimes I'm too much in love with this world rather than Jesus Christ. It's the gospel that changes us from the inside out. Only when you and I live a transformed life, totally given over to Jesus Christ, does our financial giving become acceptable worship in the sight of God. Only then. In closing, you know, many times after a sermon, I'm sure Phil's had it, people will come to you and they'll say, man, great message. I really agree with you. Uh, it really touched me. It really moved me. I was really convicted to change my life. Maybe some of you really took notes even. But let's remember what the Word of God tells us in James. James 1, verse 22. Let's not forget this. Be doers of the Word, not hearers only, deceiving yourselves.